A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Zia Jones, senior editor at Extra Magazine. Hello. Hello, Jesse. On the show today, Justified. The Laurentian consensus is in, and Justin Trudeau is off the hook for invoking the Emergency Act. And recession be damned. The market is red hot for anti-trans news. Welcome to Shortcuts, Zia, where we talk shit about the news. I love talking shit, so thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Today's episode is brought to everybody by Alina Turner, Jason Sikarik, Diana Scott, Nancy Range, Jade McGilvray, Andrew Hudson, Marina Thompson, and Colin. Hi, I'm Colin, a PhD candidate in philosophy at Queen's University. I don't pay money for Jesse. He's only worth it when he's part of an amazing package. Thankfully, Canada Land is that package and is a network I'm more than happy to support. Keep up the good work and maybe start fomenting some revolution just for the heck of it. After careful reflection, I have concluded that the very high threshold required for the invocation of the act was met. I do not come to this conclusion easily, as I do not consider the factual basis for it to be overwhelming. Reasonable and informed people could reach a different conclusion than the one I have arrived at. Wow. It was okay for the prime minister to invoke the emergency act, I guess. (laughs) No, you know, he concluded it was reasonable 
I've concluded that it was okay. He met the threshold. I didn't come to this conclusion easily because the factual basis for it was not overwhelming. There wasn't a ton of facts to base this on. And reasonable people could have come to the opposite conclusion. If the prime minister had not done that, that would have been totally fine too. Zia, it's not much of a win, but it is a win. It is a win for the prime minister. Like on a technicality, it's like (laughs) you weren't wrong, but you could have been, but you weren't really. It's like when somebody's apologizing to you and they kind of say sorry, but they don't really. And you're like, okay, I guess we'll go with it. Look, there, there was tons of nuance. It sounded like he was just like, all right, all right. Ultimately, all the facts, all the nuance, it's going to come out with a win or a loss for the prime minister, and it was a win. And that means it was a loss for conservative leader Pierre Polyev. Hmm. Did he take the L? Zia, he did not. This was an emergency that Justin Trudeau created. By attacking his own population, he poured more gasoline on the fire with nasty insults jabbing his finger in the faces of his own citizens, something that even today's report acknowledged contributed to the length and the intensity of the protest. Okay, so this is like Politician 101 where, where you know, journalists are like, okay, dude, you lost. What do you have to say? And he's like, I, what do you mean I lost? Look right here on page 433. This report agrees with me entirely. Uh, the prime minister was needlessly divisive, which it does say. It says that it was it was a bad idea for Trudeau to call all of the protesters a fringe minority. And Pierre Polyev seized on that to kind of act like, ah, maybe I didn't lose. Maybe, maybe this actually confirms everything that I've been saying from this. Dude, you lost. You lost. The thing about being a reactionary is you don't actually really need to base what you're saying and doing in reason a lot of time, you can just take the small little kernel and then spin it so that what you want to be true is true. Yeah. I'll take the L. You know, I thought this was overreach. I don't really have much invested in it as the leader of the conservatives do. It wasn't like I was like gambling that I thought this would go the way that I that I wanted it to go. This is how tortured my position is. I agree with people who say, well, what, what could Trudeau have done? He had to do something. And the way that I would have liked this to have gone is... I guess I'm glad that they cleared that and they had to clear it out of downtown Ottawa. And then I would like to have seen him told that it was the wrong thing to do because I'm mm. really concerned about what that's going to mean going forward. That's that's how I would have liked it to go. It didn't go that way. I'll take the L. How did Trudeau take the the win? Was this a a humble response? Was this a, a prime minister who who took the recommendations and the, and, the, and the criticism that was included in this report gracefully? Or did he do a victory lap? I believe he did say, you're right, I shouldn't have been so mean. Yes. And it's interesting that he needed this report to say, I should have phrased that differently. Yeah. It's never a good idea, I don't think, for the leader of a country to look at uh, a popular uprising and dismiss those people on the basis of them being a minority. Right? <laughs> like, oh, that, that's just a minority. Especially when people are so angry. Absolutely. So, yes, he did seem to soften on that point. But I think the overwhelming tenor of his response was hubristic vindication. Mm -hmm. Today, the Public Order Emergency Commission stated that the very high threshold to invoke the Emergencies Act was met. Our job as a government 
is always to keep people safe, and invoking the Emergencies Act was the necessary thing to do to remove the threat and to protect people. It's a measure of last resort. But the risk to personal safety, the risk to livelihoods, and equally, the risk of people losing faith in the rule of law that upholds our society and our freedoms, those risks were real. Huh. Wait a second, dude. Wait a second. This was justified because of the risk to people's livelihoods and the risk to people losing faith in the rule of law? That That's not what the inquest said at all. And, and that's, that's not what the law says. There's nothing in there that you can suspend the Constitution, subvert Parliament, and suspend civil liberties, which it did, because people are losing money or because they're losing their faith in the rule of law. And he says that was an equal consideration. Not that it was a national emergency, an equal consideration. People were freaking out. What the hell's going on? How can this be the Canada that I know if this is happening in downtown Ottawa? And that was what justified doing this, which is not, that's not, no, dude, you can't do that because people are freaking out in, in, in BC that the rule of law is being threatened and they feel bad about that. And therefore you can suspend the constitution. But that scares the shit out of me that that's how he's interpreting this victory that like, okay, see, I was right. You can do this if people are feeling afraid. Yeah. I mean, what does that mean for future protests that may, you know, potentially be less hateful in nature, but that may potentially go on for days and days and days. Do those threaten the rule of law? Well, they certainly make people feel that way. Hmm. People don't like this argument. People don't like slippery slope arguments because they're considered hypothetical. But, like, this is practical. This is the first time that there's been the invocation of this act, and it's the first time that there's been an inquest. And I, I am not surprised by, like, this is what inquests are for. It's a thing we do in Canada where something happens, and then we say, oh, well, we're going to take this very seriously and look at it. And then we look at it thoroughly and we say, okay, that was probably okay. You know, it's sort of like peace, order, and good government. Well, you know, two out of three ain't bad, so you're good. And what that means going forward is like a few things. Like, first of all, we heard right from the prime minister how he's interpreting this, that, okay, here, here's what I think. And now I'm vindicated and validated. Here's what I think you can do. Maybe we need to change the act. Zia, like, that's going to go one of two ways. If they change the emergency act, it's either going to become easier to invoke it or harder. I have my suspicion about which way that's going to land. I mean, yeah. And generally, if we're talking about governments changing policy without being specific about how they want to do it, I think that should ring some alarm bells. I think that, like, for me, the alarm bells are just, like, deafening here because the big issue for me throughout this process was that in order to declare a national emergency, you need to show that you're facing a national emergency. And the biggest question for me of this inquest was like, how did you determine that this was a national emergency? You know, the, the, the thing at the, the Coots border crossing had already been cleared. How did you determine that this was a national emergency? And what the government said in this inquest was, oh, trust us. Like we had some pretty super secret information that showed us that this was a national uh, emergency. And the commission says, all right, cool. I, and here's, I'll read from it. 
I find that this requirement is met. This was a nationwide, mobile, and constantly evolving series of events. Many provinces were affected, and the protest groups were numerous and geographically disparate. The protest in Ottawa drew protesters and convoys from across the country. The convoys were, by definition, mobile. Oh, dude. This was a national emergency because the people who were fucking up shit in downtown Ottawa came from across the nation and because they were in trucks, which are mobile. Yeah, they roll. Wow. They roll. They roll. So it was a national emergency. That's the precedent now. So there's the prime minister who is trumpeting a huge win there. I don't know that he's a huge winner. I'll tell you who's a huge winner in this. And people are calling him a huge loser because uh, Doug Ford was excoriated in this report for just abandoning his own province and failing to even show up for the most like basic level of accountability for this inquest. In that the text of the report can be considered the big loser. I'm going to go the other way on that one. I think that Doug Ford pulled out a huge win because once again, he has just completely escaped scandal and scrutiny. I mean, he sat this one out and it, I think it turned out to be politically exactly the right move for him. Motherfucker's going to get away with it. Another loser that was identified in this inquest were the police services in Ottawa. It was said in really certain terms that the cops failed to act. They failed to understand how serious the situation was. They failed to shut down what needed to be shut down and the situation escalated. So I think that they need to take an L as well. I think that there's like a whole other inquest that should happen as to what the fuck happened with the police at all levels. There are several police inquests that need to happen at several levels within Canadian policing institutions. I like how we heard that like, oh yeah, the, the, the convoy guys are like, yeah, the Mounties were giving us information every day. And then we're just like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, normal. We're not, we're not going to dig into that? They're besties. It's, it's no problem. Another alarm bell for me in this was that within the inquest, they started talking about how the Canadian government did not have enough access to people's social media and how they would like to look into the idea that government should be able to monitor social media better. And again, in mm-hmm. some cases, that can be a good thing. But that, to me, sets off huge alarm bells as well. I could see that being abused really easily. It goes on and on. The inquest report cites that in the 1970s, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that high levels of inflation could constitute a national emergency. Like, we are just, this is where we're coming out of this. We are lowering the bar as to, like, what the prime minister can do. And this isn't even like, people think I'm hyperbolic about this, but this is like, I was listening to John Ibbotson, who's like the squarest, most centrist dude from Globe and Mail, like just establishment voice saying like, yeah, these are like quasi-dictatorial powers that Trudeau gave himself. Mm. (laughs) That now we're saying high levels of inflation justify seizing that level of power. This is really serious stuff. I have like zero doubt that this is going to be hauled out for the next Indigenous blockade, the next land back protest, like, you know, this was a freak event. These people, most of them were at their first protest ever. What we're left with is essentially a a stamp of approval for government. And I have no doubt that that's going to be used in the worst ways possible. I take a little bit of comfort in the fact that this is not necessarily the end. 
The Canadian Civil Liberties Association released a statement. We launched a judicial review precisely because we believe that would be the best venue to test the government's claims about the legality of using the Emergencies Act. So the CCLA is taking the government to court. And I think that the standard of a court as to whether or not this was a national emergency is going to be higher than that of of an inquest. So that's a lawsuit that the CCLA launched against the government, and that's going to be heard by a federal court in April. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Zia, there's all kinds of news every day, and some of it goes unnoticed. We can't have that. We have to duly note it when it's worthy. This is your first time on Shortcuts. Can you duly note something for our listeners? I certainly can. So I live in Quebec, so I decided to bring a piece of news from Quebec. Sometimes our news doesn't make it outside of the province. But I'd like to talk about the fact that early in his first term, our premier, François Legault, and his Coalition Avenir Québec, which we like to call the CAC, promised that the government would build 14,000 affordable housing units in the province. Sounds great. Now the premier is part of the way into his second term, and 9,000 of those units are still not built. Earlier this week, a coalition of housing groups in Quebec sounded the alarm at a press conference saying, you know, we're way behind on this project and our funding has started to run out. So things like inflation and rising construction costs mean that the amount of money that the CAC originally committed to cover this project only covers about 30% of the costs and multiple projects that are underway have to be paused because there's a lack of funding. And that's including really important projects like housing for people with disabilities in the province. 
the entire province is in a housing crisis. And there was a lot of fanfare when earlier last year, Francois Legault's government committed to sending out $500 checks to people in a certain tax bracket to help with some of their housing costs. But these sort of larger scale, longer term, much more effective projects for getting people housed are not meeting their targets and that's not getting enough attention. So we need to get people housed and that's not going to happen if we can't have long-term solutions. So I wanted to duly note that the government is failing to hold up their end of the bargain. Duly noted. I got one. Listeners will remember this story that we brought you recently about how QP Briefing, this uh, publication covering Queens Park, their reporter Charlie Pinkerton was the person who dug into this whole Doug Ford stag and doe party scandal, became a scandal, and had the story before anyone else. And QP Briefing wouldn't publish it, and Charlie Pinkerton resigned. It was the ownership of QP Briefing that blocked this story. And uh, it was a really depressing story of like media publishers for some reason, you know, assumedly uh, protecting the, uh, it's not much of an assumption. We know that the specific part of the story that they didn't want published was the one that implicated these developer friends of Doug Ford. And it was really sad to see publishers valuing whatever connection or protection they wanted to offer these, these business people over a hell of a story that people had a right to know. So Charlie Pinkerton resigned in protest, as did his editor, Jessica Smith-Cross. And there were other layoffs at QP Briefing. And basically, it just, like, stopped existing over this. Like, they just didn't publish after, after this happened. Well, here's what I'm duly noting today. Charlie Pinkerton and Jessica Smith-Cross and the rest of the gang from QP Briefing are almost immediately back at work. Not at QP Briefing, but at a new publication called Trillium, just launched by Village Media. Village Media has scooped them up and launched a very similar publication to QP Briefing. And we don't talk about this enough, and Canada Land never talks about this. It's true, because it's a good news story, and we don't tell many of those. We will hear about shitty media bosses all the time. We will hear about media jobs disappearing. But when media jobs are created, that doesn't really get much attention. You don't hear a lot about like, oh, good media owner sees value in great reporting team and starts a publication to platform their work and to bring their work to the public. So maybe that's worth a little bit of attention now and then because <laughs> media boss is good, not a big story, but maybe something worth duly noting. Duly noted. Zia, this episode is brought to listeners by Article. Have you ever bought furniture from a website? I have not. I live in Montreal, so I got a lot of my furniture at the side of the road. July 1st. I remember it well. <laughs> Maybe it's time to move up and get some new furniture for once. I would suggest Article. The stuff is stylish. It is affordable because they don't have brick-and-mortar stores. They make shopping so simple. You pick out what you want online. They deliver it right to your door. I have a couch at home. There's a couch in this office. Um, everything is like mid-century modern. I like that stuff, that teak-looking stuff, beautiful Scandinavian-y design. Their team of designers are all about finding the perfect balance between style, quality, and price. Here's the deal. It's a good one. They're offering our listeners $50 off of your first purchase of 100 bucks or more. To claim this, go to article.com slash CanadaLand, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That is A-R-T-I-C-L-E, article.com slash CanadaLand for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. 
Zia, a collective of 370 contributors to the New York Times have penned an open letter to the newspaper of record over their concerns about editorial bias in the newspaper's reporting on transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. They collectively wrote that while it's true that there are plenty of New York Times reporters who cover trans issues fairly, there has been an alarming trend in coverage on the front page of the New York Times over the last eight months. They say that they've seen over 15,000 words of front page New York Times coverage debating the propriety of medical care for trans children. And they specifically cite that, that the Times coverage of trans issues has been cited in Republican states by legislators. Now, how does the New York Times respond to this open letter? Well, a day after it was released, the Times publishes an opinion piece titled In Defense of J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. Okay, this debate is raging in the U.S., but whatever rages in the U.S. reverberates here in Canada. What are you seeing in our press? We're seeing sort of the U.S. light, I would say. I think it's fair to say at this point that the tenor and the volume of coverage that we're seeing around trans people, especially around trans kids in the U.S., has reached a sort of moral panic level, and we love to import our moral panics from the U.S. here in Canada. So we are seeing a lot of the same topics being discussed, whether that be this very erroneous idea that somehow trans people want to recruit and transition a bunch of innocent kids, whether that be that there is this like influx of trans women who are harmful supposedly in women's prisons, whether that be that trans women are trying to go into sports, women's sports, and gain an unfair advantage in their competition. So we're seeing all those same sort of talking points get repeated here, but not with the same volume and not as widely. We do have some outlets here. I'm thinking about the National Post, for example, which have adopted that volume and are sort of obsessively covering trans issues in a really egregious and sensational way. But we're not at the point yet where we have our so-called paper of record doing that level of coverage and that volume of coverage. Yeah, I mean, I might even dispute the idea that uh, the Post is matching the New York Times's volume. I think that they're like, <laughs> they've exceeded it. Like uh, a listener sent in a screenshot of like the top four stories in the National Post the other week, and all of them were uh, about trans issues. And I, I would say like not in a, not in a good way. Uh, what am I talking about here? Like here's some headlines. Here's a Tristan Hopper piece from the National Post. Scotland scandalized by trans sex offenders in women's prisons as Canada ignores it. Here's another one. Transgender killer in women's prison had sex with victim's corpse. I mean, this is like really, really obscene graphic stuff. And then there are these stories that I think are presented almost on the lighter side of dehumanizing trans people. So, of course, the Jessica Yaniv story like ran for months and months about a trans woman who launched this human rights complaint when a, a waxing salon refused to give them service. And, and more recently, this teacher who showed up with these massive prosthetic breasts. I don't know. Like, there's this disconnect. I won't claim to have any particular expertise, 
I just know a few trans people. I have a few trans people in my life and my family. And, you know, none of them are trying to scam their way into women's prisons so they can sexually <laughs> violate people who might be dead. Like, like, like it, there's just like this endless carnival. You know, I don't want to call anybody names or dehumanize, but the stories that are selected by the Post specifically. I think the Post is clearly trying to push an agenda. And there are two reasons that really stick out for me that sort of show how bad faith this is. One, when we're talking about women's prisons, there are a multitude of human rights abuses that routinely take place in women's prisons, and they are not getting covered with the same fervor, and certainly not as often in the National Post or debatably anywhere in Canadian media as sort of these really salacious stories about trans women. And two, when you're talking about sort of those lighter stories, like you said, that's not something that generally trans people are talking about when they're talking about access to fairness in the workplace. Most people who are trans, who are pushing for better treatment in the places that they work, are not thinking about how they want to show up to schools wearing, or anywhere really, wearing large prosthetic breasts. They are talking about things like wanting better pay, wanting access to career advancement, wanting to not be barred from the workplace to begin with because they're trans. When you present these issues in papers, especially like the National Post, where I would assume that most readers aren't intimately familiar with trans people in their lives, it makes them seem, trans people that is, it makes trans people seem, like you said, as though they are, you know, asking for these really egregious and salacious things when in reality you're just cherry picking because that makes it really convenient for the post and for the post columnists to say, hey, look how unreasonable these trans activists are. Here's what every one of them wants. And that's not actually what's happening. I just wanted to point out that it's not just the National Post who's this like sole boogeyman in Canada when we're talking about trans issues. In Quebec, we don't tend to have our columnists sort of travel outside of Quebec's borders, especially when they're Francophone columnists, but they are equally comfortable using these like dog whistle terms. If you look at Journal de Montréal, for example, you regularly see columnists covering trans issues and they're throwing around terms of like woke mob and militant trans lobby. You see those things come up. So it's not just a National Post problem. And it's not just an Anglophone problem. This is also happening in Quebec. You know, cherry picking is one term and certainly that's going on. But I, w I would suggest that it's even beyond that because I, I, I think that the, the, the and, and I don't want to make this argument or give it space or any credence, but I think it's important to understand where they're coming from or why they feel like these stories, you know, are, are the important ones to tell. It would go something like, well, look, news is always about extreme cases or, or largely so. It's about outliers. It's not about things going well. It's it's about when you are redefining things around gender, there are going to be these edge cases that force certain issues. And, and yes, those stories are interesting to our readers and these things actually happen and we report on things that actually happened. But I think that's a, a fallacious argument because when you are dealing with such statistically small groups. And when you create a market for a certain kind of information, you can't even trust the cherries that you're picking. Like mm. in, in Tristan Hopper's article, he's talking about in the entire country of Canada is 99 people. Mm -hmm. The number of people he's talking about who have asked for a transfer on that basis is 16. 
There are 16 people in all of Canada who have asked for a transfer to match their identity. There are 14 trans women who want to be in women's prisons. And then of those, if there's one who is involved in crime at that prison, if there's an incident, we say, look what happens. Unless you compare that to the rate of violence in prisons writ large and find that there's anything, like, what does that actually say or mean? And there's another part of this, too, which is like, we don't talk enough in media about how our desire for a certain kind of story creates a marketplace for people to get a lot of attention if they match that pre-written narrative. So when you talk about your Jessica Yaniz or this or this teacher with these giant prosthetic breasts, the phrase giant prosthetic breasts, I think, has been in the Canadian media far more than it needs to be. What you've got is a scenario where, like, if someone is willing to play the boogeyman or the boogie person, if somebody is willing to inhabit that role, like if you're willing to play that, then you can get national attention for months and months and months. Yeah, sure. I mean, I obviously can't speak to the motivations of any particular individual if I haven't met them, but I think that you're right in pointing out that that story when we're talking about the teacher dominated the news cycle four days. Like people were like frothing at the mouth to read more about that story. And it's still going on. It's, it's all over Fox News and the New York Post now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's one of those rare stories that leaves Canadian borders. It's ridiculous. And when we're looking at, you know, you mentioned Tristan Hopper's story. I think it's also really important to look at what gets left out of those pieces. Of course, we're talking about a really small group of people, as you pointed out to begin with, but there was no information about the risks that trans women face in prisons. Uh, he made a big deal in the article about how uh, trans women were way more likely than transmasculine people to want to be transferred out of men's prisons. And it's like, yeah, of course, I can actually see a lot of reasons why maybe transmasculine people would not want to be incarcerated in a male prison because, mm-hmm. you know, that could lead to violence for them as well. Tristan looked at a study from Canadian Correctional Services that looked at rates of offense, of sexual offense rather, among trans women. And that study itself talked about how the majority of people who committed sexual offenses had suffered from sexual abuse as children, didn't include that. So I think it's really important to look at what's getting left out of this coverage as well. The product of this is graphic and vulgar. It's not safe for children. Like the coverage is sensationalistic. It's tabloidy. The stain of that vulgarity and obscenity is transferred to trans people writ large. It's it's not something that the papers are sort of putting themselves in a position to wear. It is different than the the New York Times more kind of dry coverage where they're like uh, focusing on hormone therapy and things like that. And they can kind of present a bit more of a respectable front that like, no, these are serious issues affecting our children today. What do you make of that kind of editorial position? Which I think is also like, you know, we can certainly find examples in the Globe and Mail and other other Canadian press that are kind of uh, taking the same tack. I would push back a little bit on the idea that there's no sensationalizing or that it's sort of more balanced in a way. Of course, you don't have necessarily phrases like large prosthetic breasts in the New York Times coverage, but you do have sources that are often aligned with far-right groups without having that be disclosed. And they're saying stuff like, girls are chopping off their breasts. So they're not necessarily, even though they're talking about a dry subject, which 
at the end of the day is access to healthcare, they're still taking on some of that language and some of that framing that sensationalizes what should possibly be like a much drier form of coverage. We also get into this sort of like just asking questions type coverage, which many people have talked about recently. We get into this question of respectability. And I think a lot of journalists in the New York Times who are writing these pieces are using respectability as a cloak. They are journalists who consider themselves to be liberals or centrists, but they're actually echoing these really reactionary talking points and these reactionary right talking points. And they're doing really bad health and science journalism. But because they are, you know, fancying themselves as centrists, they feel that they can present it as something that's sort of just asking questions. It's like at this level of obsessive detail to the point where publications like Quillette or, you know, increasingly the National Post, and then looking at these statistics about the New York Times, the level of coverage is, it's inordinate. It's its like it's the tip of the spear of something larger. And its it's not that I'm saying that we shouldn't be discussing trans issues, but like, the level of heat on these issues and the amount of emotion that it's so disconnected from any kind of reality or lived experience. Uh, trans people I've met are surprise, surprise people who are not looking for national news coverage for these like strange circumstances in schools, prisons, uh, waxing clinics or otherwise. And when you do talk about, well, what kind of coverage do you want to see? It's for like pretty reasonable stuff that you're citing about le- levels of, of violence and health and resources, which... I think are legitimate issues that I that I think for a lot of groups are, are not going to get a ton of attention. And then, so the kind of attention that we do get is, is at this fever pitch. What do you make of that? Well, I've heard this expressed to me by people like, why am I reading about this so much all these days? And, and, and people are even getting a sense of like, it flips into this thing of like, oh, I guess there are more trans people or kids are becoming trans more than they, like it, it, suddenly this is everywhere. And I've heard sort of like an anti-trans light argument made by people of like, Why is this in my face every day? Why does this need to be talked about so much? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely the way that newspapers talk about it. Like, it sounds like there are trans people, like, lurking on every corner, waiting to, like, grab your child and transition them. It's ridiculous. And, you know, going back to what you were saying about the number of trans women in in women's prisons, you're seeing that kind of exaggeration subtly happening when we're talking about trans kids as well. So like the latest data shows that in the U.S., for example, there are 30 million kids between the age of 10 and 17. 1,300 kids last year were given blockers, uh, Mm -hmm. hormone blockers, puberty blockers. 4,200 kids were on hormones and fewer than 300 kids between the age of 10 and 17 were given access to trans surgeries. So that's 300 out of 30 million people. That is a minuscule number. The idea that it's in everyone's face, that it's exploding, that is manufactured by the fact that there is just this over-focus, this like intense scrutiny and this tense focus and this volume and onslaught of coverage. It's being manufactured. <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you. It's, you know, kids are seeking gender-affirming care. That's true. But this idea that it's out of control, that there are so many people, the sense that people get doesn't match up with what is statistically happening. And I think, again, that's because 
as I was saying, this is um, at this point a moral panic. And when we panic about stuff, we blow it out of proportion. Zia, that is Shortcuts for this week. Thank you so much for joining me for it. Thank you. Listen, we're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read everything that listeners send. Zia, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter, unfortunately, at ZiaJonesA. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofor. Theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Listen, if you value this podcast, please support it. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism and conversations like this. As a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.